Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A Living History Production. This is the Living History Podcast, broadcasting live across the airwaves. Hello everyone, welcome to Living History and my guest this week is someone who's been on the podcast before, in fact had one of the most popular interviews we ever did on the podcast. It's uh, Vietnam veteran Gary Mackay and he's going to talk to us today about what it means to veterans going back to Vietnam and that um, sometimes difficult process of going back and, and confronting their wartime experience. So, Gary, thank you so much for joining us again on the show. Not a problem, mate. Gary, tell us about your experience after the war. Did you, as you know, when you returned to Australia after you'd been wounded in 1971 and you came back and had a life in Australia, was Vietnam something that loomed large in your life in those years after the war? Oh, definitely, because um, like many veterans, we uh, I went through a fairly traumatic time. Uh, apart from being wounded and spending a, about a year in hospital, um, there was a terrible uh, apathy that had swept across Australia and uh, and as and I by that stage I had uh, been offered a permanent commission, so I, the army was now my new life. And um, I felt uh, somewhat betrayed by the public uh, who were throwing crap on veterans uh, for their service in Vietnam when they really should have been throwing crap on the politicians. Did you see a lot of that firsthand, Gary? Oh, yeah. At one stage, uh, my platoon was reacted to a demonstration at University of Queensland, and and so uh, the platoon, as part of a rifle company, deployed out there to uh, provide security for the university regiment, the Queensland University Regiment uh, compound and its vehicles, which were under threat. We weren't issued live rounds, I might add. We were we carried our weapons, but we were not issued live rounds it was all more for show than anything else and um a good a high percentage of the soldiers in the platoon um hadn't been to vietnam most of the ncos had and most of the uh the officers had but um it was yeah you know there was a verbal abuse and threats and all that sort of stuff but we shrugged it off because we knew that if they had come across the wire, they were going to get a fair hiding <laughs> because 
we weren't feeling really happy about it all. You know, it was it was a bad time. At one stage, we were banned from wearing uniform on public transport, as if as if we had something to be ashamed of. You know, it was it wasn't good. How did you find that transition? Well, you didn't transition back to civilian life because you stayed in the army. But how did you find the the transition back to peacetime? Um, how did you find trying to get on with your life with a wife and young family um, as a you know as a recent veteran of the conflict? Um, I was pretty lucky in that I was posted to the jungle training centre, and if we were going flat out. We were still. We were still training guys to go to Vietnam as part of the embassy guard. Uh, but uh, by the time uh, 1970, the end of 1973 came around that and uh, Gough Whitlam got elected, that basically all went down the drain. And that was one of the hardest things I had to do was to tell guys that they would not be going on the embassy guard to Saigon. I think I was lucky because we were fairly busy and then the end of 1974 came around and uh, I'd been promoted to captain and um, and then then to 6RAR. And so then Cyclone Tracy came along and, bang, we were into that. And that was that was good for our, the Army's morale because um, we had a real job to do. We were appreciated by the people of Darwin uh, in helping put their lives back together and providing assistance to the civil community. So it was very busy. And then the next thing I knew, I was posted off to uh, Rifle Company Butterworth on security duties for uh, six months. So I think I was lucky in that I was kept busy. I'm glad I wasn't just doing normal training jobs, you know, because that might have been a bit tough. But uh, I was lucky in that I was kept busy. The moratorium movement by the end of 73, beginning of 74, basically died out because everyone had withdrawn from South Vietnam, the Americans and all the allies had withdrawn and had, uh, had, and the conflict in Vietnam had now reverted to what it was originally, which was a civil war. And, as, and, you know, and that continued until the 30th of May, 1975. Given the way the war ended. I mean, it was a bit of a slow burn as well. I mean, it wasn't a surprise to anyone. How? How? What was the feeling like as a, a, a wounded combat veteran who'd lost mates and who'd given everything you could over there in Vietnam? How was that wind down in those years when it was obvious that we were just packing up and going home? Well, before we deployed, they decided that they'd only have a two-battalion task force in Nui Dat. And we were warned uh, beginning of 1971 that we would probably not get a full tour in. And we knew that we were not going to be staying. There was no way. There was no way. Even if you just watch the television reports uh, without doing any other analysis, that this was a winnable war. And uh, very early on, my sergeant and I decided that our main mission when we went to Vietnam, was to bring as many people back alive as we could without shirking our duty. And uh, that was it. When we were told, when we were in Vietnam, in uh, August, September, that we would be pulling out of Nui Dat uh, by December and uh, coming home, with the exception of my rifle company that stayed there 
as the thin red line until March 1972, we felt we had betrayed our South Vietnamese comrades. It was a terrible feeling. It left a, an awful taste in your mouth. We felt like we were abandoning these people to their fate and we knew without the Allied support, they were never going to win. There was no way. Um, so we felt a sense of betrayal there, I guess. Um, when I was in hospital, I felt, oh, I remember I was, uh, I just had my second lot of surgery and uh, I was sitting in, in my hospital bed on watching my TV and watching Bob Hawke uh, walk up the steps of the Sydney Town Hall with a North Vietnamese trade union delegation. And I felt really strange about that. And I thought, which is probably one of the reasons I've never voted Labor ever since. But, uh, um, yeah, I just felt pretty awful about that. Then, when I got out of hospital and back to work, and we watched uh, the sad saga of, of South Vietnam being overrun, I don't think any soldier wants to be on a losing side. But as far as we were concerned, uh, the only... The only thing we got out of it as Australian veterans was we were never defeated on the field of battle. And by 1971, we actually owned Phuc Thuy province. We dominated it. And so we hadn't lost our little war. Uh, but on a larger scale, of course, uh, the Allies uh, had been forced to withdraw, if not more for a military reason than for political you said that you felt like you'd betrayed or that, that we as allies were betraying the South Vietnamese. By this stage of the war, we'd lost more than 500 blokes killed. I mean, what were, your, what were the feelings of the blokes who were currently serving in Vietnam about the sacrifice that had been made by all those blokes before them and now the whole thing was coming to an end? No, a terrible feeling. It was like, well, what was this for? Why Was it worth it? Why did, why did we get there in the first place? And, of course, it took many years for the truth to finally come out about our involvement in uh, South Vietnam. We felt pretty ordinary. Uh, but the thing is, um, you can't naval gaze. You're, you're out on patrol. You've got to stay alert. You know, the enemy are uh, I'm not going to give you a free pass. So you had to get on with your job. Tell me, Gary, about life after the war was over, maybe in the 80s, back in Australia, was it something, was Vietnam an experience that defined you? Was it, did you find that your life after the war was just intangibly changed because of, the, well, because of what you'd been through in, uh, in, the, in Vietnam? Oh, definitely. Uh, having been in combat, having experienced uh, all, sorts of, all sorts of uh, combat, uh, from fleeting con contacts to ambushes to... Uh, heavy battle, uh, some with armour and some without. Um, the whole raft of skills that you pick up or you hone uh, whilst you are in a combat zone uh, is incredible. It just becomes second nature to you, of course, and uh, that's one of the reasons I wanted to go into training organisations uh, when I came back, um, was that it, it was invaluable in passing on those lessons to the next generation of soldiers coming through. What about on a personal level? Were you suffering from any 
stress-related issues to do with your service in Vietnam? No. Um, I think because I was in the green machine, I really felt I could see it happening to uh, soldiers who had been national servicemen especially, who had uh, been conscripted, trained, um, went to the war, uh, came back and then no debriefing, um, just turfed out and sent back home um, with very little support. And, of course, it was going to take another 10 years before people realised that uh, what a lot of these veterans were feeling was post-traumatic stress disorder. I didn't have that. Um, Well, I don't think I had it. Um, I must admit, I used to go off my lolly a bit at people who cut cut me off in the car park or... Um, but I didn't get hit with uh, PTSD until 2004 uh, when I was on tour in Vietnam and I'd gone up to Fire Support Base Coral and Balmoral with a friend of mine, uh, Gary Adams, and we were helping the local People's District Committee um, find a mass grave on one of the... uh, perimeter areas in front of where one RAR had fought. And there were about 41 bodies in this mass grave. And we were trying to help the locals out by identifying the good reference and where they thought that grave would be. Because Ficeport Base Coral was now a working rubber plantation. So it wasn't an easy task. Anyway, long story cut short, uh, the local paramilitary policeman who did not like Caucasians of any flavour uh, came down and checked our paperwork and threw us in jail for the day at gunpoint because um, our permits were were given out of Hanoi and they were slightly incorrect. Uh, we'd been to Fire Sport Base Coral, not a problem. Then we went to Balmoral, but as soon as we entered Balmoral, um, we were arrested and Thrown in, thrown in jail. When I came back home from uh, that event, uh, I started having nightmares and uh, went and saw my GP who referred me to a the Vietnam Veterans Counseling Service that then was, and then they sent me to Dr. Bob, the psychiatrist, and Dr. Bob came up with the technical term for my condition. He said, you're fucked in the head. And I said, I queried that, and I said, what do you mean? He said, you've got post-traumatic stress disorder. I said, no, I haven't. I'm a bronze Danzac. I'm a military cross winner. Um, I'm too tough for that. And he said, well, answer all these questions. And then at the end of it, he said, mate, you've got PTSD. And because you weren't in control of the situation in Vietnam when you got thrown in jail, when you came back, that triggered a response, and that's what you've been having 14 days of nightmares and, you know, I was going through a tough time. But after uh, after a half a dozen sessions with Dr. Bob and then doing some psychology work with a local counsellor, um, within within a couple of months I was, I'd built a bridge and got over it. But, uh, that was the only time it happened was after that, the trigger was being thrown in jail. But I'd seen other guys go through worse. Mate, I'm not surprised that was a trigger. It sounds like a pretty traumatic time for you. 
especially when the kid that was way pointing, pushing me and pointing his, prodding me in the back of an AK-47, he had his finger on the trigger. He didn't have it on the trigger guard. And I was more scared of being shot by this kid through bad weapon handling than anything else. And I, <laughs> yeah, it wasn't good. It would have been a great irony to say I've already been shot by one of those before. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to see it happening again in peacetime. Yeah. Mate, when did you start thinking about actually returning to Vietnam and visiting you, the, the former battlefield? Well, I'd, uh, I'd written um, my autobiography, In Good Company, and because it was such a huge success, the publisher said, well, write another book. And so I decided to do an oral history. And it was only going to be Army, but then I realised that was not going to work. So I did Army, Navy, Air Force and civilians who went to Vietnam as well. And um, that that went well. And then uh, I was at that stage a half-colonel and I was on tour uh, with the Australian Staff College up in Gladstone in the I got a, a phone call from uh, one of the senior historians at the Australian War Memorial, and he said, um, have you thought about applying for a research grant? And sure enough, I was awarded a John Trelaw research grant, and that allowed me to return to Vietnam because they said, what would you do if you got it? And I said, well, I would study Vietnamese language and then I would go back to Vietnam because I'd like to interview the enemy and find out what they thought of us as soldiers because this thought had been going around in my mind to do something on my rifle company. And the end product of that was I wrote a book called Delta Four. Um, there are a couple of drawbacks to that. One, I'm profoundly deaf in one ear as a result of my service in Vietnam and Vietnamese language is a tonal language with seven tones. And the other thing was my instructor at the uh, School of Modern Languages was North Vietnamese. <laughs> and so I was speaking Vietnamese in the South with a North Vietnamese dialect, which didn't go down too well. <laughs> so I had, a few, I had a few obstacles to overcome in my research. But so I went back and did Delta Four. And, and so that in 1990, 94 was my first trip back and I was still serving in the army and um, I had all, I had to get all sorts of letters of the introduction and stuff like that but I went back and uh, this guy had told me that he was a tour guide you know so I went with him and found out he wasn't a tour guide's backside and I thought that's what I'm going to do. When I, when I get out of all of this, out of the army, I'm going to go and be a tour guide in Vietnam as full-time, but in between whatever else I'm going to do in life because I know I could do a better job than this clown, and, uh, and so that's what I did. Well, I want to talk to you more about that in a few minutes, but just tell us about that first trip back to Vietnam. What was it like? I assume Did you fly into Saigon or Hanoi? I mean, what was it like when you were back in Vietnam for the first time since the war? Yeah, so it's 1994, the embargo is still going. And uh, we landed at uh, Thompson Earth, no air bridges, and the 
of the reception area was a hangar, no aircon, no nothing, and it was heavily guarded with uh, army who were in the same field dress as I'd seen when I was in combat in September 1971 against the North Vietnamese Army. They had pith helmets on, chest webbing, carrying AK-47s and wearing uh, green canvas jungle boots. So it was a bit of a flashback. Um, when I presented my uh, visa and uh, passport, I then had a bloke who was, he must have been a graduate from the Maxwell Smart School of Spies because <laughs> he followed me everywhere I went, but he was not supposed to be seen. But I, we caught him on film several times <laughs> uh, with a group and I, but I was with 18 guys from my rifle company and for all of us, it was our first time back. And uh, yeah, it was different, but uh, we had a strong group. Uh, that were touring, there were a couple of wives that come along. My uh, former company commander was with me and his son. And so, uh, yeah, we, we when we saw something dicky going on, we just, uh, just tightened up and looked out for each other's backs. Well, Gary, you've been back to Vietnam dozens of times and I had the privilege of travelling over there with you for the 50th anniversary of Long Tan. You've taken a lot of veterans back to Vietnam. What's your feeling about about the importance of those veterans returning? Is it important if you've served in the war in Vietnam to go back and walk the ground? Is it just a nice thing to do? How? What, what's your advice to for veterans who are thinking about going back? Oh, yeah. Look, some guys have told me I'll never step foot in Vietnam again. Even the local treasurer from my sub-branch down here in Kiama, he was at the Battle of Long Khan, and Potholz said, I'll never go back. Anyway, one day I was at morning tea with him, and I was talking and talking, and he said, oh, this mate of mine did a tour with you before, and I said, yeah. He said, I think I'll go back, and I took him back last year, and he he loved it. Um, I've had... Over 200 veterans return with me, and I, w- I can say with my hand on my heart that not one of them has regretted it. Sure, some of them had some very emotional times while they were in country, but um, they got the support from either their mates or their partners that they were travelling with. They get it from me, of course, because um, I can see when it's coming on. And... Um, when I am on tour, I try to get veterans involved to tell their stories to our tour groups. Um, so they don't just get to hear my experience of war. Well, and as a personal thing, I also get them to tell their story. And for many of them, it's the first time they've really spoken to other people about it. Um, it's, it's a fairly emotional time for them because when you're on operations in Vietnam and someone gets killed, um, there is no normal grieving process, so they don't get to do it. Even when they come back from the bush after an operation, it's uh, a remote procedure. It just You just don't get to do it properly to grieve for your mates. 
So when they're back in Vietnam and they go back to the battlefields and that all of a sudden it wells up and you and you, then it's the time for grieving and especially when we go to um, the long term memorial cross at the battle site and we have our small service there, um, it means a lot and the guys finally get some closure uh, when they do that. I think it's I think it's good for them. One of the things that I've most enjoyed about operating tours to Vietnam is seeing that on most tours we have a mix of veterans and civilians and I think that works really well you know we have we have younger people who have no experience in military service let alone the Vietnam War and we have veterans there who went through that combat and I I think that works really really well there was a couple of times when we did our tour in 2016 where you know the, the coming together of people who had this respect for the veterans but no understanding of what they'd been through and then the veterans wanting to tell their stories it was really it was really quite remarkable especially standing on the ground where it all occurred. Do you, do you find that when you go on these tours? Oh, absolutely. Uh, um, on the last tour I did, um, I had two guys who'd just come back from Afghanistan and they were uh, commandos. And all of their military experience has been in open country. <laughs> and uh, and when I took them up to Coochie and we... I started walking through the bush and then I got people to go and stand 10 metres off the track and they just disappear into the background. I look at these two commandos and they're looking at each other and going, hmm, this is different. And you could see them starting to appreciate the sort of combat, you know, the jungle fighting that we had to do. Um, it's it's really good uh, to see that and... It's also really good if we can get people um, from the Army, Navy and Air Force all there as well. We've been lucky enough to have uh, helicopter pilots on tours and guys who've been air crewmen, guys who've flown caribous and all sorts of things. Um, and on one tour, we had a guy who'd flown out of Fan Rang with the Canberra bombers and he had no idea of the ground war. And he gave so much in what his war was like, and then he learnt so much from us. It was terrific. When we were over there, I noted that at one stage we ran into a group of um, North Vietnamese veterans, and there was a lot of camaraderie between the Aussie veterans and the North Vietnamese. It wasn't uh, it wasn't something we'd set up. We just bumped into them in the reunification palace, and there was a lot of handshaking and backslapping, as I recall. How, how important is that reconciliation with a former enemy? Well, they... they Ever since the very first time I went back, it has been, uh, it has really been an eye-opener. It's, it, the thing about it, and that, that was what I found when I went back and did my book Delta Four with the research grant. I was sitting down with a guy who was the district chief in a place called Long Dien, and he'd been in 274 Viet Cong Main Force Regiment, and I had fought against this this mob on several occasions and um, I was welcomed into the office and because uh, I want to interview this man and um, you know, it was just overwhelming this sort of hospitality and I said to him I said I, I'm finding this really um, remarkable that 
There is no animosity, no anger, no angst against the Australian veterans. And he said, there are four reasons. And I said, what are they? And he said, um, the Australians, you, you buried our dead, you took care of our wounded, you tried to do something for the people of Fuktui province with your winning hearts and minds thing with med caps and dent caps and putting windmills in and all building roads and bridges. He said, and you did not commit atrocities. And um, they had a lot of respect for the Australian soldier. And when you might remember at the uh, presidential palace, the, one of them asked our tour guide, our local guide, who we were, and uh, he said, uh, New York, which is, uh, which is, uh, these are Australian soldiers. Um, you could see their faces, they all changed, and it was all shaking hands and, and so on and so forth. Um, that's, that's a common reaction whenever I run into people. Um, who have been on the other side of the rifle. Uh, it's, it's, it's because of our reputation as, as soldiers in Vietnam. That's obviously as a distinction from US troops. Are you suggesting that? Uh, definitely from South Vietnamese and Republic of Korea. Um, I really cannot speak for the Americans because I haven't watched that interchange. Um, the Americans that I ran into up in Da Nang, who were on a tour, were all from a uh, air cav unit. They're all chopper pilots or crewmen, and they really did not mix, from what I could see. They uh, they didn't go out. They they really just stayed in a very tight group. I didn't see too much of that at all. What would your advice be, Gary, to any veterans who are listening to this now and who are thinking about doing their own trip back to Vietnam? As I tell anyone who's seen her going, go to the local library and get a copy of um, my, the book I wrote, which was designed for veterans. It's called Going Back. And it was uh, my publishers, Alan and Um, and um, because I'd done so many books with them, they gave me a bit of latitude to do a niche book and... Going back, um, many people have commented to me that they were so glad that they read that book because it's about... I, when I, I actually took a case study of guys, I interviewed them before they went, interviewed them while they are in country and then three months afterwards, and they became a case study. They're all five RAR people. And, uh, and it's not me telling them how good it is to go there. It's their words telling other veterans what they've experienced. And uh, and, and people, they get a lot out of that and they realise it's not going to be the bogeyman that they think it might be. They might actually find that it was an enjoyable experience. And I've had many veterans say to me, um, many veterans, um, at the end of the tour, I've said, "Well, what do you think of that? What do you think of Vietnam?" And they said, "Geez, isn't it great to see the fact that they've picked themselves up and moved on from that terrible conflict?" 
which tore their country apart for so long. And, you know, and just the way they've gone ahead. You know, one thing about the Vietnamese people, they don't look behind. They don't forget, but they don't look behind. They look forward. And they certainly have gone forward. Well, it's it's a wonderful country. I mean, I've been to Vietnam several times now, and it's 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 one of my favourite places to go. The the people are wonderful. The food, the 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 culture, the landscape is spectacular, and of course that wonderful military history that's there. And it was a real privilege, Gary, to be over there with you uh, the time that we did it. And I'm looking forward to getting back over there again with you, mate, to uh, to walk the ground. But um, thank you so much for coming on and sharing these experiences. I know a lot of them are very personal for you and uh, and perhaps difficult for you to talk about. So I really appreciate you coming on and uh, and just sharing your thoughts today. Oh, no problem, Matt. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.